Has your local footy club had a recent clangor or challenge? Well, Amy is here to help. The Amy Clangers for Good competition is back for 2024. This year, Amy are donating $10 for every clangor recorded during the AFL season with eight community clubs in the chance to win up to $15,000. If you want your club to go into the running in 100 words or less, tell us how Amy can help your club bounce back from a recent challenge. Enter now at amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. That's amy.com.au forward slash clangers for good. T's and C's apply. This week on Dylan Friends, we have Brandon Jack. Brandon Jack is a former AFL player for the Sydney Swans turned musician and author. He's just written his first book. It's called 28 and comes out on the 3rd of August this year. It's been described as a memoir of football, addiction, art, masculinity, and love. Brandon and I connected on the finer details of playing AFL and the things that go through anyone's mind on the fringe. Trying to be someone you're not, thinking ill of your teammates to feel better about yourself, dealing with tall poppy syndrome, and even being a part of the problem. Brandon's book paints a detailed portrait of his early years of adulthood and joining the AFL, where he avoided any vulnerability and the lengths at which he went to to be liked rather than respected. Cannot thank Brandon enough for his time. Hope you enjoyed the ep and make sure you go get his book, 28. Available in all good bookstores. Support your local. Let's go. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast. Many ways I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears. 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 Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to the Olympics? <laughs> They're sitting there meditating, going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How this is a meditating site? We had a Wu Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, it's like <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Brandon Jack, welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast, my friend. It's an honor, it's a pleasure, it's a privilege to have you via the World Wide Web. Dill, thanks. It's, it's good to be here, you know, locked down at the moment, uh, but can still talk to people like this. So it's awesome. It is. It's incredible. And um, mate, it's, it's a, I've very much been looking forward to doing this podcast since we had a chat. We uh, obviously knew each other from Sydney, um, had a, a quite, a, I suppose, a rivalry. It's not often that you get two of the Neeful's most esteemed players on one podcast. <laughs> and today's a special occasion for, for football. I think football is a real winner in this, um, in this chat. Well, Neeful football yeah. is anyway couple of Neeful legends hey two time I'm a two time Neeful team of the year player um, and do I think we I think the the roots of this podcast I reckon I met you once off the field at the unicorn a couple of years back <laughs> late at night and I reckon we mentioned it then and it's been a process to get here but you know here we are now Mate, the Unicorn is my stomping ground. I miss that place more than anything. If anyone ever has been to, to Sydney and Paddington, the Unicorn, um, that's my happy place, my friend. Indian when I away from this world, oh, goodness gracious me. <laughs> I've spent some some long times in those lines of, of the Indian Home Diner and waiting for my um, butter chicken kebab on the way home. But, um, mate, we're in a, a different headspace at the moment and, and yep. definitely keen to... Have a chat about your story, my friend, because you're doing incredible things. Um, for those who don't know and have been living under a rock for the last uh, few months, um, you've written a book, which is, which is incredible. And it's, it, it isn't often that, you know, like I was thinking about this today, like I've had a lot of guys on the show um, that have written books. Normally they're, they're autobiographies of winning Brownlows and, and premierships and, and talking about all these big contract offers that, that we got. And, yeah. and as, as incredible as they are, I haven't found them too relatable. But yeah. um, I was lucky enough to get a... A little bit of a, a prelude into your book, mate, and we, we got it a couple of days ago. I had a read, and it's absolutely unbelievable. So, firstly, congratulations on that. But how did it how did it come about? Awesome, thanks, Dill. No, I, I was looking forward to you reading it as well, and and you know, I think that people in our position will resonate with it, hopefully, um, and even people who haven't played football as well. But that's the thing. I kind of 
what you're saying there. We read autobiographies of guys who maybe play 300 games, win a Brownlow, and then like right at the end of their career, that book comes out and it's like they're sailing off into the sunset. Um, I played 28 games of AFL footy and, you know, that's probably the more common career path than the the 300 games. Um, And, you know, the things I experienced, a lot of people experience, and I don't think fans or, or lovers of the game hear those stories like, you know, waiting around for a text message if you're in a senior or reserves meeting. Like, that's something a lot of people don't think about, but it's a part of the experience. Um, and as well, like, I stopped playing four years ago now professionally uh, and have had, you know, a bit of time to simmer on my career and was pretty upset about it for a long time. And as I write, that's, I guess, where I'm coming from. And I'm trying to figure out what football really means to me because it's not an easy thing to do when you haven't had the career that, you know, you can be really proud of. Oh, mate, honestly, like, I hope people can really understand that as as much as I did then. I feel they will, and you summed it up incredibly. And and I think today, for anyone listening out there, even when we are talking about football, it's it's just about life. Like, it's about just whatever career you're in. And I think that's something that I always try and... Um, to say when I'm talking to former athletes or professional in, in their industry, relate this back to whatever you're doing because I think then that's when you'll, you'll really understand it. And um, You've said it so right, mate. Like a big thing for me when I finished football um, and was you know, trans, um, transferring into another career and transitioning was, was exactly the fact you said then, you know, I played 41 games, so technically I'm a lot better player than you. So firstly, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, I shouldn't but, be here right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just let, just settle down You don't represent bit. cloggers, mate. You don't <laughs> represent us. <laughs> but it was a really hard thing because I was like, look, I want to start this podcast. I want to be in the media, but I haven't had these accolades. I haven't had a successful career. Like no one knows who mm. I am. No one cares about what I have to say because I haven't done it. But you're right. And, and even with the, with talking about list cloggers, another podcast we do, which is, which is a lot of fun, but... I think the reason why um, this book that you've written, like List Cloggers, the podcast, and, and hopefully some of my stuff I do is is successful in a way because people are, it is relatable. Yeah. You know, like 90% of people don't reach the accolades that they want, but they do grow from it and learn from it and love other passions. They become more well-rounded people from the experience. And um, from your book and, and what, you know, I've read um, thus far, that's exactly, you know, pretty much a story, you know, yeah, you've been yeah, through yeah. these things and you've, you've come out the other end um, it, more. Exactly right, Dylan. Like, that's the thing. I think the insights that you can provide on footy and people who haven't had the great careers, it's still valuable insights. And sometimes I reckon, you know, the, the media falls into the trap of, you know, when they get the commentators on and underneath their name, it says all the accolades. And it's like, that's, a, that, that's what makes them valid. Um, you know, it doesn't, at the end of the day, there's guys who've played zero games and who offer comments that are like really insightful. Um, and it's a struggle to, you know, fight against that and just be valid in terms of who you are. Um, but you know, you're doing a great job at it. And I think hopefully, yeah, 20, uh, the book I've written can, you know, do that as well in a way. It does, mate. And we'll, we'll definitely chat a lot about that today because there's so many things that resonate mm. with me that it's like that thing when you, you don't even know that resonates with you till you read it and you go, fuck me, I can't believe that, that someone else has felt like that. And yeah, cool. I think for me, I, you know, I'm probably still at a stage with my career, you spoke about it before, where you've done some writing and, and you've been able to have a think about it and, and really go, mm. I really haven't um, reflected on it a lot. Like I do joke about it a lot um, mm. and I probably just try and joke about it because I don't really want to look into what it actually was. Yeah, but it's, it can be scary, man. It is scary. And, and I, I, I'm really wary of this because I know, and I'm sure this would have been a big thing for you writing this book, mm. 
and I'm going to put words in your mouth because I'm assuming they are and correct me if they're, I'm not, but this is definitely my stance on it. Whenever I talk about this sort of stuff and I just want to precursor this early, like I was so, I'm so grateful for the career that I had. Like I'm incredibly humbled and, and, and loved it and wouldn't change a thing and, and so happy for it. But mm. just because there are things inside that story that we didn't necessarily like doesn't mean that we're not grateful for what happened. Yeah, is that exactly. Similar thing exactly. to you? And the thing is, you know, I, I do the joking about it as well. And there was a long time where that was the only way I would talk about football was to joke about myself. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But as you said, it, it's reflecting on it as well and, and, you know, looking at the full journey. And at the end of the day, I am really glad that I had the career I did and that I played those games. And for a long time, I was like so unable to say that. Like I wouldn't talk about football. Or I would just joke about it. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of people go through it. Let's get into it, man. Um, cool. Take us back to, to the start. Brandon Jack growing up in New South Wales. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think people actually understand <laughs> the divide of AFL versus NRL until you live in Sydney. Like I, in, yeah. in Victoria, you think it's a bit of a joke, but like you get there and people like genuinely hate AFL. Yeah. <laughs> and it's even like what you would have seen is like, this is really progressive. We love AFL now up here and it's still yeah. hard to tell. Like I like when I go down to Melbourne, for example, and I see people wearing uh, Guernseys, I'm like, people wear Guernseys down the street? What the fuck? Like yeah. it doesn't happen up here. Um, yeah, you know, I uh, grew up in the heartland of rugby league in, in Sydney and I uh, had a dad who was the Australian fullback and was one of the best players in the world for throughout the 80s and um two older brothers and we all played rugby league and you know that was from as early as I can remember I was like I'm gonna be the Australian fullback and I'm sure both my brothers thought the same thing so we were all gonna be the Australian fullback which couldn't happen um and (laughs) you know just earliest memories are playing footy in the front yard going to games on the weekend had a fierce hatred of AFL I mean I I call it AFL not Aussie rules because I'm just like and I say Jersey not Guernsey I have to force myself to say Guernsey because I'm just a rugby league boy um, you know, was so averse to, uh, to Aussie rules. And then, you know, Kizza started playing, my older brother Kieran started playing AFL and don't know how he kind of found the courage to do that. It was pretty groundbreaking at the time. Um, and then eventually, I guess I followed his foot, footsteps a bit. You did say that because I think in, in one of the books you allude to that as Kieran playing AFL is nearly treasonous. And, and I'd have to, yeah. <laughs> to say that that's like me or Gary Ablett Jr. pretty much going and playing <laughs> rugby league, like on the same level. That's like the stars um, of the game nearly going and doing it. Because as you said, like your old man was the captain of Australia as a fullback and, you know, two of his sons have gone on to actually change codes and play AFL. It, it must have been pretty big. Kieran was, he was a gun from like when he first started playing. So it was kind of easy for him to, you know, transfer over. Uh, me, not so much. I wasn't as like gifted athletically as Kieran, I don't think. Um, so probably had to work on a few more things. Um, but yeah, it, it was a pretty big deal to change over and to actually make it in the end. Um, it's actually funny. I've got a pretty incredible story about your brother, actually. So when I was in under 16s, um, we were playing at a national carnival for like, you know, Victoria, Western Australia, yeah. SA, all these teams. Anyway, we're there and it was in Western Sydney. So it was like the first year they're trying to bring the second team in. So we're going up there to promote the game out of Blacktown. Um, you would understand that one time to promote a game uh, in 2016, the, the last place you'd probably put it in the world is Blacktown. I reckon I've played 60 games at Blacktown in my <laughs> life at that field. At like seven in the morning as well. Like the resis were, the running joke was we'd be scheduled for the SCG and there'd be a cloud in the sky and then we'd be at Blacktown seven o'clock the, the next, next morning. Day. Oh man, yeah. that drive back is just like, oh. 
It's depressing, especially after you've had about four kicks and you're really worried <laughs> about the next week. It's a very yeah, long yeah. road back. But yeah. we were there for the carnival and um, we're in this meeting room and Adam Goods was there. And Adam Goods like came out to talk to all the players and was like, you know, guys, go well. You can be like me one day and, um, you know, you know, play 300 games, win flags. And I was just thinking, yeah, that's me, 100%. Yep. Like, can't wait for this. And Kieran Jack was there. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> like, who the fuck is this bloke? And he gets up. <laughs> And he hadn't played a game. Like, I think he'd just been drafted. <laughs> and he's like, my name's Kieran Jack. And, like, at this stage as well, like, I'm under 16. It's like, I yeah. have OCD. Like, I know every name of every player, what number yeah. they have, like, what boots they wear, like, everything. I'd never seen this bloke before. I was like, who is this bloke? <laughs> I have no idea. And he gets up and he starts talking. He's like, you know, my name's Kieran Jack. Um, I've just transitioned over from rugby. And, yeah, I'm really looking forward to debuting for the Swans. And um, one day I'm going to be the captain. Oh, and no I was way. like... <laughs> who the fuck are you, mate? Like, you're, you have yeah. no chance. Like, you're yeah. literally, like, going to be there for a couple of years. You're probably just ticking a box that, like, he was the Swans a tagger. have to he was, a, he was a back pocket tagger at that point as well. He would have been getting literally. That, probably five kicks in the Canberra League at that point in time. <laughs> literally. And he wasn't yeah. even playing. And I, I just remember that. And I was like, whoa. And then, you know, like, fast forward to look now, and I suppose we'll talk about your brother a little bit today because he's mm. obviously your brother and done some incredible yeah. things. But 300 games later and a premiership and... And, and a captain, he got there. Um, it's pretty unbelievable. I'm so glad that I was there for the years to to see him. I was there when he became captain and, you know, he was all Australian in my first year as well. So I'd always heard from people at the club that, you know, he was a really hard trainer and he was a guy to be like. And finally, like witnessing it firsthand was, was really cool because, you know, he's seven years older than me. So in the back of my mind, it was like we might never get to play footy together, but we did. Um, yeah, so that was pretty awesome. What are your memories, mate, of, of finally getting to the Swans? I so saw your brother's there, as you said. He's been there for a lot longer. You get picked up. How did it all? Had uh, that all transcend? Were you like, were you drafted? Was it like an academy? I don't know if they do this anymore, but I didn't get taken in the in the national draft and got a phone call like the next day from some, uh, somebody, uh, Peter Berbatov at the Sydney Swans, and he goes, "Hey, mate, you know you're coming in to train with us on Monday," and I was like, "Uh." no but sure um so i like packed a bag that night and the arrangement was that i trained for four weeks and then at the end of that was the rookie draft i think so it was no guarantee and the guys doing that were like me dane rampy uh xavier richards sam naismith and maybe one or two more um and whereas like the, the draftees came in day one and did like a couple of laps and were just like, you know, just looked after. We were like thrown in the deep end day one doing three fartlek runs and full skills. So kind of just really was thrown in the deep end with it. But I um, I think I, I did adapt pretty well, you know, because that, that's just who I was as a person. Like if I'm given a task, I'll apply myself to it relentlessly. Um, and then, yeah, I ended up I remember Horse pulled me into his office after that four-week period and was like, you've shown more than I thought you had and, you know, we're really happy to offer you a spot. Um, and then, yeah, I didn't think I'd, you know, play a senior game the following year because they were still, um, that was a premiership team the year before. But, you know, I, I ended up playing probably my most games in that first year. Unbelievable. Let's, let's go into it, mate, because I suppose from that, um, you, like you said, you've been picked up. You're playing in a pretty successful team on and off. Um, and I think one thing that you and I would both know that what comes with elite sport is 
is selection and, and de-selection and, and droppings mm, and all yeah. these things. And there's a really, really interesting and relatable insert in your book about um, the diaries of being on the fringe. And yeah. I think it's such a such an interesting point um, to, to give insight into about what actually happened and what how this takes place. And even the thoughts that go through your head at these stages, like some of these thoughts that, you know, you speak about in the book, um, you know, I'd probably publicly never said this out loud, but 100%. I would yeah, right. agree with a lot of these points that I did. And it, and it, it, it makes it really hard because I'll let you exclude what they are, but mm. you, you really, it's, it takes yourself to another side of your brain that you like don't even know if it's like really you or if it's like a normal thought to have. Bill, that's like, I pushed these diaries away when I retired and shoved them in like a, a closet somewhere. And then when I found them again, this is kind of why I started writing the book I, I found these diaries and I was like, who the fuck is this person? Like, mm. it's a it's a different side of me. Um, and, you know, I think I'm grateful that I, I did write it down because I, I reckon a lot of guys would go through that and experience it. But to actually to write it down, I couldn't recreate that if I tried. Like, some of the stuff I was writing is just like pretty, pretty full on. What are some of those feelings and thoughts you had when, when getting omitted or um, not selected or, or let down um, in your eyes? What, what was going through your head? I mean, there's different stages of it, hey, and, and some of the darker places you go to are like, you know, you're in a team, but you see yourself as working against that team. And it's like, for example, in my third year, Isaac Heaney came in and played round one and I thought that that spot was mine. Like I'd had this great preseason. The the media was saying I was going to take the next step, but Heans played and Heans is a far better player than I was. But in my mind, I'm convincing myself that spot's mine. I'm like, fuck you guys. I'm the best small forward in this team. That's my spot. So then I'm watching the game from the grandstands and, and every time Heans is near the footy, I'm like, don't touch it. I'm like, I hope he doesn't touch it. Or I'm counting his stats. I know how many stats he's had in my head. And I'm kind of like, all right, if he doesn't get any more, then, you know, they might drop him because I've been dropped for having 12 touches before. Like, it might happen. So, you know, you start because you want to be in that team so badly, hey, and somebody's in your spot. Um, You know, and and then other times I remember I I wrote like fuck horse a few times in my diary because I was like, he's not picking me, even though he's not the one really making the complete decision. But you pick people to be like, I'm going to prove you wrong. Like I'm going to make you look stupid. I'm going to have 40 touches in the resis, all these sorts of thought. And it's pretty fucking toxic when you think about it, but it's just how I would put myself on the edge. Unbelievable, mate. It's, it's so true. And I, I don't know how, you know, people listening to this, I, I really hope that someone can relate to this, but, and I'm sure they do. Cause it's not a feeling that is uncommon. I know so many guys that would have felt like this, but I can mm. literally recall the same things in my head. Just, and it's not you. It's not you as a person. Like, yeah, it's like survival. You, you just want to survive, and that's what yeah. it turns into. And and even on that whole scenario, like, again, it's it's not your personal decision. It's just what what your mind does. It's fucked. Well, it's and- it's you're, you're in this environment where it's like we used to do trademarks, personal trademarks, all the time. So everyone would have to have their thing, which is like, and even if it wasn't true, you had to say like, I am the best two way midfielder in the competition, and you had to like say that about yourself, and you had to believe it. But, you know, that's not true for everyone and it can't be true for everyone. So people who, you know, that self-talk doesn't line up with the reality, you get pushed to this point, you know, and, it, and that's where I, I took it out on some people around me. But the thing, that's the thing, you, you talk about footy clubs and they're your best mates as well. Like my best mates were the people I were competing against for a spot. And there's not many 
workplace environments with that dynamic. But it, it, yeah, exactly right. And it, it's it's crazy. Like you, you are, you're competing for, you know, one team, one dream. Like that's the goal is to win this flag. But, the, you know, I was chatting to, to Sam before this, a producer, and, and he was saying, fuck, like, do you guys actually think like that? Like that's, that's unbelievable. But mm. in a way, it's nearly healthy because it push it the drive to get into that's the team. The that's what makes yeah. it so strong. So it's like, what do you? It's like you don't want this, but also like coaches would be looking going, fuck, we need this. Yeah, for sure. And that's something I don't ever want to come across as being like we shouldn't motivate ourselves like that because it does it it pushes you towards greatness. Um, I just think that you know there's a a balance to be found or a like a gray area where it doesn't have to be so all consuming. Um, like I I still you know I. With, with my writing, for example, I still do a lot of the same things. And I'm like, if I get a rejection letter about a piece I've published, I'm like, I'm going to show you how good a writer I am. I'm mm-hmm. going to write this piece that blows you away. And, and that works for me. Um, but it's finding that off switch, I reckon, and being able to go, that's when I'm playing footy, that's when I'm writing. And that's got nothing to do with, you know, how I am as a, as a partner or a friend or, or, or things like that. Yeah, yeah. No, you're so right. And I, I experience the same things now with, with podcasting, for example. You move into a new world and you're in business and I still have these thoughts about other things, but I go, well, is this actually, do I actually not like this person or this group or is it more of a reflection of me that I'm like vulnerable in this situation? Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> checking the podcast charts and seeing where you rank, dude, you do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fuck <laughs> this guy. It's sort of easy when you're at number one all the time, but it's, you know, <laughs> but I'm thinking like when you drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It won't happen, mate. You'll be fine. When you were saying uh, about the footy, and again, we don't want to act like it, you know you didn't enjoy footy at all. But was yep. there a stage where it did change for you? Like, were you enjoying it up to a stage, and then there was something that happened, or did did the all-encompassing stress just come too much? It was, you know, my first few years in a professional environment were pretty anxious. You know, I was always yeah. never a certainty of getting picked, and was always in that fringe spot. I think. There was a, there is a specific moment that I reckon kind of was a big turning point. It kind of broke me a bit at the end of my third year. So I reckon I played maybe nine or ten games, probably nine games in a row at the end of 2015, and it felt like you know I was finally cementing myself in the team. Um, and then I played this shocking final. I think we were in uh, in West Australia against Freo, and I played so poorly, and I got dropped the, for the final the following week against North Melbourne. And from that point on, I kind of really turned my back on footy like I had two more years of a contract but I like clocked out and I I got this phone call from horse when I was at Bondi Junction and I knew it was coming I knew I was going to get dropped um and it was a real quick conversation and he said like we're picking Rosie James Rose he's got more firepower up forward hope do you understand and I was like yeah whatever um and I kind of I went off the rails a bit after that and I think at the same time that's when I started really jumping into music as well so I found an escape there um but that's probably after that is when I really started drinking heavily as well and doing all these things that you know you used to escape talk us through that man like what what sort of things were you what were you doing what were you finding comfort in was it just being outside of the club was it something was it like a release for you because I think one thing that um people would would definitely understand not just in footy but in life that anyone that's an athlete and, and we say that's a lot in the show but an athlete isn't someone that just plays footy. It's someone that's competitive and has drive. Mm. It's it's hard to turn off the switch when you work so hard and you and you dedicate your life to something and you have this supreme work ethic and competitiveness. 
that yeah. often then translates to off field and you do that in the same thing you're doing, even if so, that is negative things. Well, Sorry, just to, I'd yeah. say for like music, I then started, I really dove into, but the, the immediate thing that happened after that was I kind of assumed this spot as being like that disgruntled resi's player like you know there's different kinds of people at each club and that's one of the kind of i don't know roles you can fall into and i remember the start of the following pre-season i along with a couple other guys in, the, in a similar position just organized these drinking events for every friday night so we'd train monday to friday in pre-season and have the weekend off and we'd organize these big piss up drinking games for fridays and use that to get us through and then use that to like completely write ourselves off. And it was like, we, I, we played stumps in four weeks in a row. We played stumps, we did wizards. Um, then we did centurion, which is like a hundred shots in a hundred minutes, which, you know, was not good. And then pub golf. And we like went all out trying to plan these things. And yeah, I mean, there's some funny stories to it, man. Like wizards, for example, we had this, we had this blazer that we, that we bought from Vinny's and on the blazer, if you won wizards each year, you got your name embroidered. If you won, start, uh, if you were best on on footy trip, you got your name embroidered. So Dean Towers put his name on it three times because he voted <laughs> himself best on on footy trip. Um, and, you know, like there, there's some good names on that blazer, man. Like uh, not saying what for, but you know, Tommy Mitchell's on there, Toby Nankivis, like some good guys are going through the swans. Um, <laughs> but, like some elite names. That's a good list to be a part of. Um, but, you know, like just that was kind of our bonding to comfort each other. But... I remember like with Wizards, it was how fast can I build this staff that's as tall as me, like with, with cans um, or like pub golf, for example, we, we had like printed scorecards with all the pubs we were going to. We had all these rules. We all dressed up as golfers and, and walked around Paddington playing pub golf and it was meant to be 18 holes. But after seven holes, I like couldn't walk because I was so A, bent on winning something and B, kind of just wanted to like drink a lot of this pain i was feeling about footy away so yeah there was a lot going on there do you think a part of these as well and, and speaking from experience when i was younger and, and i think this was pretty prevalent when i was at carlton like I, I probably couldn't get the respect i wanted um on the field so i just wanted to be liked and that yeah. was like a massive part of me just you know being an idiot like i i do stupid shit just to, to somehow maybe impress people um yeah and and just I was just so stupid like being Man. young just thinking I just wanted to be liked instead of being respected and, and didn't ha know how to get it yeah I saw if, if I couldn't get respect on the footy field from people because I, I felt like I didn't have that I was like well I'm going to be the piss head at this club and I want them to be like BJ doesn't care about footy he just cares about having a having a crack on the piss and, and you know that's why he's not playing seniors not because he's not good enough but because he just mm. doesn't care enough um I, I fell into that massively. It's a big thing, isn't it, man? Like it's it's nearly like a lot of people do this. It's like you, you're nearly giving yourself an out. Like yeah. you, you're, you're pretty much burying yourself before you're even giving yourself a chance. And I think you, we really do this a lot. It's so like, you know, if I don't care about something, then I can't be hurt by it. That's, totally, that's totally what I was doing. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I know a few guys that did it and to hear, you know, that, you recognize that other people do it too. It kind of makes me feel a bit like better in a way, but I wasn't the only one doing it. Oh yeah. No, I don't think it is, man. And I think there's plenty of people out there that would do this and, and to be able to reflect on it now. And that's, that's like a big thing. Like I'm going around in circles today. It's nearly like a, a bloody therapy session for me. But <laughs> I think that a lot of these things you look back on, you go, fuck, I was such an idiot. But 
in a way it's it's made me who I am now. So like I'm really thankful for it as well. Well, yeah, you don't list like it's it's maturing in a way, but you know, like they do tell you at the start of your career, like you you might not you probably won't be the guy that plays X amount of games. Like they warn yeah. you about that stuff, but the way we're geared and the way we kind of hone ourselves as athletes is to just deny that and reject it. And I don't know, maybe it's sharing that story in a different way um, or sharing more of those stories will, will help people understand it. But yeah, it, it's just a natural thing, I guess, to do at the time. Do you think, you know, I was thinking about this today and I hope this makes sense, but I honestly look back now at the end of my career and what you said before about you don't want to let people know that you care too much because you don't want to mm. let them know that it's hurt you. It's like mm. you'd never, I, I never wanted to, you know, the way I sort of left the game, I never wanted to leave everything out there and actually be man enough to be like, no, no, this is actually what I want to do. So I was yeah. just like, look, you know what? I am done now. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Just so people didn't think that I was heartbroken by it. Yeah. But then I look at what happened with the podcast and I was like, well, fuck, now I can transition to this, but I mm. have to go at this with everything. Otherwise yeah. people are going to think that I still can't get over my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, nothing kind of prepares you for it. Hey, I, I remember my whole last year, I knew I was going to get delisted at the end of that year. I, I knew the whole year I wasn't going to be at the Swans and I didn't talk to clubs about getting trades or anything. I'm like, I'm done at the end of this year. But still when I had that delisting meeting with Horse and Tom Harley, like I cried my eyes out in that meeting and I, I had prepared for it for a year and it was like a two or three minute meeting. But man, it just rocks you. Like, because you've spent your whole life wanting to be something and no matter how much you pretend like you, you can't be at a professional footy club if you don't care you don't rock up every day you don't train your ass off if you don't care um and that i just remember that moment rocked me so much and that just showed like yeah it, it meant so much to me no i think it's a massive trait that that i think males in general we, we don't like to show that things care to us we yeah we we joke and we use banter when when we um when something close to us we, we can brush it off as a joke but we deep down we know that fucking hurt and like we, we really probably yeah. fucked up in this yeah, situation sure. and I think you know the, the uh, banter and stuff's great and it, it does have a role but you know also being able to be like fuck I was hurt by that that's a it's a powerful thing well it takes more guts than anything like again we go back to um the point and I, I probably overuse this so much but I use it in life now is every decision I make is about being respected over being liked and i think those people that can come into um into workplaces or their industries and i go fuck this bloke or this girl does Mm. not give a shit what anyone thinks and they just Mm. go for it and that's like the people that i'm drawn to whereas there's other times where i would have sat back and be like what a loser why are they doing that yeah i mean (laughs) did you talk about did you have that line at footy club at both your clubs like like versus respect we used to talk about that all the time at the swans we didn't but i needed to hear that message Far out, yeah. It was like, well, I mean, the Swans had a great culture and we, we all knew what it was, but we used to start meetings, like leading team sessions and the opening line would be like, well, what are we here for, you know, to get better and what do we value? And it's like, well, respect over like, and we all knew that. And why do you think that was so hard? Like, what, what was it at the Swans about that culture? Do you think that everyone was buying into that? Because the, the Swans have an incredibly famous yeah. culture, I suppose, about the Bloods and, and, and being respected over being liked. Yeah. Was it prevalent through the whole list or...? That footy club, that the Bloods culture is so powerful and, and you come in knowing about it too, which kind of, you know, helps a bit. But then all around on, on the walls, there's what it is and the behaviours that make it up. And we'd always do sessions where we'd hone in on it. So everyone knew we had a trademark, which is like, I don't know, 
three words and two behaviors for each word. And I still like know those off by heart because that's how often we repeated them. Um, that side of things was really powerful to be a part of because, you know, outside of footy now as well, like I like to live by those kind of traits. Um, I, I've, I'd never been at another club, but from people I'd spoken to who'd been at different clubs, they were always pretty amazed by how we did it as a team and how kind of on the same page we were with things like that. What were some of those things? Like, is it is it hidden about like what you're allowed to speak about or is it just something that stands out to you? They've changed it now. They always t- We had this like one hour meeting once about do we replace the word hard with relentless or ruthless? Like we were that kind of nailed down into it. Yeah. Um, you know, like hard disciplines united was the three words that when I was there, we used to talk about all the time. Um, and you know, hard would be hundred percent of effort, hundred percent of the time, uh, united. It'd be like, I drive my teammates, uh, I do extras and things like that. So it was real simple behaviors that we all knew and we'd pin it to the back of our lockers. And I think all the first year guys had it above their beds at home as well. Um, you know, the, the simple things that, you know, it, you don't have to be a, a great player to do those things. And I think, you know, I, I'm aware, I, I think I probably over, over exceeded as a footy player, to be honest. I shouldn't have played as many games as I did. But I think part of the reason I did was because I saw that culture and was able to do those things. Um, so it was, it was beneficial for me in a lot of ways. Who would you say at, at the club while you were there were some of those of the biggest drivers in that? Like someone that stands out for me straight away, like Luke Parker, um, yeah. just loving the way he goes about it. Park, yeah. Parks is pretty chilled out though. Like he, he's such a like red hot guy on the field, but off the field, he's a surfer guy, he plays guitar. Like he's real chilled. Uh, easily for me, I'd say Jared McVeigh. Um, you know, incredible story. He's been through so much, but like, I would have talked to Macca like, 10 times in my career because we, you know, we're rarely in the same team and didn't have much in common off the field. But, you know, I'd vote him number one in leadership every year because I respected the hell out of him that much. Um, and we'd do these, you know, if we had um, guys missing massages or, you know, a few kind of discrepancies, we'd do punishment sessions at Maroubra Beach at like five in the morning and we'd go down and we'd take our towels and we'd do knuckles, so knuckle push-ups um, <laughs> on the gravel, which is pretty like you know, it cuts you up and Maka would be the one that led that usually and you know it's it's all in a circle looking at each other and everyone's struggling like first you guys are kind of using their thumbs to take pressure off and you can't do that um and everyone's wincing but Maka just called the session like up down knuckles palms knuckles and just wouldn't be phased and like you see a guy doing that and he's just the most fucking mentally resilient resilient person you know I'd ever, I'd ever met like that. And yes, he was easily the, the biggest driver for me. And you know, Goodsy as well in a, in a different way, but Maka in terms of like the hardness and the respect was, was number one. Huge. You get the culture stuff now, and, and you speak about this in the book as well. There's, there's an excerpt there speaking about um, footy culture. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's probably changed a lot over um, not only the last five years, 10 years, 15 years. It's, you know, changes all the time. And I think it is getting into a lot better place now with, with younger guys coming into into clubs but mm. what were some of those things that you particularly didn't enjoy about about being in a footy club yeah and this is these are the things that like they probably are everywhere in different cultures but what i noticed is like the the not wanting to stick out thing um yeah i think every footy team would have a whatsapp group and i was like i was a mass contributor to whatsapp groups like if somebody said something in a meeting or or posted a photo on instagram like we'd repost it and edit it and share it around and like 
you just kind of you, you learn not to bite back either because if you bite back then they go harder at you um like a, a guy posted a photo with his girlfriend on their anniversary being like nice view or dinner with a view or something and then all that week at training we were like oh dinner with a view dinner with a view like that became his nickname almost um nicknames are a big thing too like you, you, at a footy club you become really adept at coming up with nicknames like that uh about stupid shit man such stupid stuff um yeah that's the one thing that you know i think is a was a, a bit problematic you know the if somebody sticks out then you, you cut them back down and and it's you know making sure everyone's you know it, it's tall poppy syndrome in a way we're, we're definitely good at tall poppy syndrome um in australia mm. and that's something for sure like uh, i think when i was a younger player being at, at carlton um I, I just thought that that was how it was and, and how clubs yeah. are meant to be with older guys just being hard on the young guys which look I, I totally like there is a time and a place for that but yeah i suppose what we're talking about was a little bit um more in depth but I was so surprised when I got to the Giants, like how supportive the bunch of blokes was. It was it was almost weird. I didn't know yeah, what to do. Like, yeah. It was actually quite awkward. I was this is like, why are you being nice to me and why are you being supportive? Um, but a part of that, I think you you said in the book, came back to us again, like in, in general, males not wanting to be seen as the outcast, and I think like we're, we're yeah. just not. So much of our emotion we use, and again, I can hardly articulate this sentence together, but so much of the emotion we use, it's nearly crying out for something else sometimes, like yeah. with, with the banter and everything else that goes along with it. Well, yeah, for sure. And I think something that really sticks out to me is like when we got, when we drink with each other, we'd, we'd hug each other and we'd do things like that and we'd actually open up to each other. And we had this game going, I was on a footy trip one time and it was after i don't know 10 drinks or whatever we'd play this game where we'd finally say nice things about each other so we'd go around a circle and we'd say something nice about somebody in the circle that's my favorite game and it's yeah i do that all the time now (laughs) um (laughs) but it was like we had to have so many drinks to get to that point and it would be so unnatural to have done that before um yeah man it's so interesting what do you think now like i going back and, and reflecting on your on your career um are you happy with how it turned out do you think like from all these experience that you went through you're a more well-rounded person um do, do you regret anything or is it just a part of your life now yeah good question i, I am content with it you know I'm, I'm not i'm glad that i that i was there for those years because i've had experiences that you know not many people get to have um and i think the club you know instilled some values in me that i that i live by today um, but at the same time, if I had have not made it and, and gone to university and, and finished a degree by the time I was 21 or if I traveled for a few years, I, I would have, you know, found value in those as well. So it is just a part of my past now. And, um, you know, I've, I'm glad that it happened and, you know, moving on to the next thing, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, mate. For me, um, not that you asked, but I thought I'd give my opinion <laughs> on it anyway. Um, I'm super proud of, of everything that I've been able to achieve and, and so happy. And, and the last thing I'd ever want by anyone listening to this is is to think that, you know, we're, we're bashing the AFL careers. I know for a second that any young um, male or female that, that wants to play footy would, would give up anything to do it. And I, I seriously think that I am probably the luckiest man in the world to have, have done what we've done. But in saying that as well, I think you realise really quickly that there is other things to the world and, and mm. again, putting words in your mouth and, and my view on this, like... I, as much as I wanted to be a really good footballer, I always wanted to be like a better person yeah. and, and to grow from, from the experiences and, and not let me playing 41 games be the highlight of my life. Like I wanted mm. to be able to do something next and still be mm. as happy and fulfilled as what footy had for me. 
I wish I played 41 games still. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to get that in there, man, just to, to make you sure. Hey, so this book writing process, like this is yep. pretty incredible. Um, look, we do have some academics. There's a lot of guys that I've played with that are quite um, intelligent. They do a lot of study, but I've never played with any guys that are like writing. Um, mm. How did this come about? Is it Was it something that you did from school? Was it, yeah, what was the goals around this? Took my own horn for a second. I, I was always a pretty good writer in school and, and teachers would always point that out to me. Um, and I like, I was really competitive in school as well. So I, I wanted to come first in subjects and whatever. So I, I applied myself there, but um, I didn't write for my first few years at the footy club because I just wanted to be a footy player. That's how I saw it. Um, and then, you know, coming out of the system, I, I started writing again was lucky enough to get a book deal with my publisher kind of before I had anything significant written. Like they just trusted that I would put something together. I think I bluffed them a bit. I told them I had way more done than I had and they they trusted in me. So how does that, sorry, just on that, how does that actually work? Do you just go to a publisher and say, I've got an idea for a book? Normally you'd have to like, so they have this document on their website that you can fill out and they watch your idea and all that and they pitch it internally. Mine was a bit different. I contacted this publisher this woman called Jane who I knew of uh, on LinkedIn and I don't use LinkedIn, but I inboxed her on there and was like, I want to write a book. Like, what can we do? And we met up and she like must have liked what I was talking about. Um, and it, but what we were talking about then was far different than what I've ended up doing, which is interesting in itself. Um, you know, so you get approved and I kind of was told in six months, write a 80,000 word manuscript and then we'll edit it and go from there. So I, I did that in the six months. I wrote that book. But then, you know, that book is, none of that is in what ended up coming out. It's, it's a completely different book. And everyone says that your first draft is always bullshit. Uh, and I was like, nah, my first draft is great. But looking back, it was just a, a stepping stone to, to get to the final product. Um, yeah, and I, I approach writing in a similar way to footy. Like I, I, have a, I see it as a craft and I read other books and, and take things from that and appreciate, you know, where like I appreciate weird shit man like why do people use a semicolon or, or a hyphen like I'm a nerd with that stuff um but you know I I love writing more than anything right now and that's that's my passion you'd absolutely fucking hate me man I literally put <laughs> I put like commas in the middle of like no that's the thing I'm words. like do I don't it your even way. know where I don't know what goes <laughs> where like I even in terms of language I can't even <laughs> talk properly um I I know you're a big fan of the show I I I have a knack of just making up words. So in the book, it just wouldn't make sense, I suppose. You've got to have the tone of voice when you're actually making out words because people can still sort of understand what you're saying. Yeah, there's a, there's an extent to be crafted, but I think there's beauty in that. Everyone's got their own voice and I like that, you know. You don't. I'm glad I didn't do too much at university that, that taught me how to write a certain way. I always have written my own way because um, everyone's got their own voice. I like it. Hey, I know, this is just more saying um, I've only read one book of, of late and it was – Besides yours, and it was the Boy Swallows universe. Okay, yeah, yeah. I haven't read, read this? that, man. Oh my god! I this is a hot take, really controversial. But I picked it up and read a few pages and couldn't gel with it, man. I couldn't do oh. it, and I'm like, I, I feel like an outcast because I'm the only one I know that it's like that. So if they, if anyone else out there feels the same, then please we'll, we'll start a group together and talk. Maybe every- I think it <laughs> just reflects me being a real surface level reader. I just read whatever's popular, and, and it's a there. great book. I, I can appreciate it for what it is. It's like I think it won every award possible. Um, okay, Trent Dalton, man, he's, he's a genius. Well, I, then I was, I don't know if you're going to like this compliment then, but I felt like <laughs> the actual styles of that was quite similar. Like oh, great. when reading your no. book, and wow. I can't say this because I haven't read a lot, but you, when you talk about something where you could just say, 
this is a rock. You yeah. sort of go into depth about what the rock actually is and like oh, everything that Man, surrounds it. Get, so I should have got you to do an endorsement for the book. This yeah, you should. <laughs> this have. is kind of like Boys Follow Universe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what huge. I'm talking about. Um, I just like the no, way you explain things. That's the, like I, I I've written a few articles for the paper, and this is a completely different writing style to that. Um, normally, I, if I write for the paper, I'm 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 paid to write an opinion on something, and to write an opinion on something, you have to like you can't just paint a picture you have to say like give a take on it but what i think i did what i was happy with about the book is i, I just paint pictures a lot of the time and i think mm. i let people read it and come up with their own takes on things and because people are smart enough to do that man um you got to trust that readers have their own opinions and know what they're doing so yeah if i'm explaining a rock then i'm going to explain that rock <laughs> Yeah, you you rock it well. The thing with <laughs> the thing that you just mentioned there though, that's actually really spot on, is is something that I happens to me all the time. Like I'll be watching a movie or listening to it. Listening to music is another one that's really mm. similar. Like I'll be listening to the lyrics and think of something that relates to me, but then I listen more into the song. I'm like, oh my god, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But I yeah. I got this out of it. So like, it's yeah. a pretty cool thing to have. Like you're sending your message, but by someone else reading that, they're taking something so different out well, of it. That- that's what I'm loving about, you know, I'm doing interviews and stuff on it at the moment. And the best interviews are the ones where people, you know, have their own take on it or that they, they've read parts of it and they tell me things about it, you know, and what it, what it resonated with them. Um, I love that far more than having to like explain things. Cause it's mm. like, let's have a conversation about it. I write so people read it and it, it does something to them. I want to know what that is. Doing a podcast, doing interviews, it, it's, pretty simple i think like it's it's something that's quite simple you're sort of talking and you can hide yourself with humor and, and avoid things that you don't necessarily want to talk about but i feel like when you're writing a book it is such a private thing and there is some pretty um incredible like things that you do open up in about mm. the book that you know you might not have really spoken about before and, and one being um the relationship with your parents which is mm. you know it's pretty incredible that um i felt like when reading that that like i was nearly somewhere where i wasn't allowed to be like, does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Uh, it's, I think throughout the book, I, I write about things that I haven't talked about with people before. Um, things that I see as like vulnerabilities and things that I see as not meeting like an expectation, societal expectation. And, you know, I, I, I have a strained relationship with my parents and I haven't talked to them in properly in, in years now. And, um, you know, I, I wrote, I didn't really want to write about it, but it, it just kind of was so important to the narrative. And my family had been written on before in the media. And I think in the context that it had been written, I know that people get 400 word space for an article or 700 word space. And to explain a situation like that can't be done in like that amount of words, especially when you have a, like a 15 word headline, which is very clickbaity. And I guess this was me being like, this is a, a really nuanced situation that, you know, a lot of people go through with, you know, not having great relationships with their families or their, their brothers and sisters and things like that. And I still don't think I captured it completely, but it was a lot of work went into being like, hey, this is not a fun situation to be a part of, but it's still partly my choice. And I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to write trying to say there was a right or wrong in it either because mm. there's not um i i've written self-reflection at the end of the day and more so than anything i hope that that's what people take from it is this is me 
searching for meaning with a lot of things in my life and football yes but you know family is another one and that and it's so closely connected to football in my life that you know i had to write about them both but you know i i've if somebody else out there reads it and is like shit this is something i haven't thought about or that you know i haven't been able to put into words myself then like fuck that's great and i'm i'm hoping that that does serve a like serve a purpose for people yeah man i'm sure it will i'm sure it'll be a massive massive thing for people and i think it's one of those things that you might not even know how many people it probably affects until the book's released and and people really read it yeah again like i just i i because as i said i talked about how i had a different version of the book at the start and in that version i had there's two things i wasn't going to talk about in that first book football and family and i had half a half a page on my family because i knew that i had this feeling that like the media might ask questions about it because it's it's just something would come up and i didn't want you know to be taken out of context um so I, I wrote like, I'm not going to answer any comments on my family. That's my choice. Um, and I did the same thing with football in being like, I'm not going to talk about football. And, you know, those are things that I was running from, hiding from, um, and that, you know, delving down into probably, you know, will help other people. It's helped me. But, you know, talking about things that we wouldn't normally talk about, there's power to that. I think, you, mate, you're so right. And and I think with the um, discussion about the family and, and, and how, why it is so clickbaity is because a lot of this stuff is so hidden and mm. so for someone, for it to be something that is in the public and it's it's something that people are so drawn to, yeah, it almost makes it so much better for people that are going through something like this when no one else would know what's yeah, going on. It's, it's like, it's fucking damaging, man. If like somebody else out there who has a strained relationship with their family sees an article on my family or another family like that, they read that and go like, "Oh, I'm a I'm a freak. I don't I don't live up to the normal expectations because my family doesn't work that way either." Like, it's really damaging. So to I think the chapter on like my family, for example, is like probably the longest chapter in the book, and that's like I don't know seven seven thousand words maybe. So I spent plus all the stuff that comes before it, and I still you know as I said I didn't I could never capture it fully, but I still you know that amount of words is better than. 500 words no I, I i totally agree mate it's you've you've done an incredible job there on something that's so tough and so vulnerable to talk about and Thanks, yeah Jill. really um really looking forward to everyone getting to, to read it because i think it can help a, a lot of people hey you're not just a ex nfl uh nefl star nefl you're not legend, just yeah. a nefl legend sorry you're not just an ex nefl legend you're not just a a poet i lost um, in the i lost world. three nefl grand finals by a goal deal <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> well, that yeah. sucks. Do you know in the podcast, by the way, with Xavier, um, with with Ted Richards, who's honestly one of my favorite chats ever, the best player. Yeah, I brought up in that the fact that he, he dropped, dropped the, the mark, mark oh, and he man. didn't he didn't like it, didn't like that story at all. Um, so we moved on from it very quickly, and the whole story he was like laughing about everything until we got to that one. He just sort of. The drop mark, and, and we lost one yeah. to Aspley after the after the siren. Hey, how did you lose to Aspley? Mate, it was a 38-minute last quarter on their yeah, home deck. Right. I, we talk about this story too much. Like, I don't know, some bloke kicked a goal from 55 metres out after the siren, so full credit to He hasn't been seen since, I think. He's just been yeah. just been partying, but, you know. Anyway, that's my needful stories. Yeah. <laughs> Done. <laughs> um, let's go on to the next phase because this is pretty impressive, mate. You are not only a writer, as we said, but you're also in a band, and that is fucking cool. I had Talon over on the show last week who um i'm sure you know a lot about telenova yes i know i know everything about every australian band 
Okay, Every fantastic. Every Australian bed. Well, they're, well, they're absolutely unbelievable. Um, Angeline is probably one of my favourite singers I've ever come across. But it was so interesting because I love music more than anything. Like, it's honestly my life. But I realised how much I actually knew nothing about it. Um, and even just, like, forming a band. You can be in, like, ten bands at a time. Um, the, the, like, record labels and deals and how yeah. they take a lot of money from you, especially in Australia, how <laughs> hard it is to fucking break into the market. But you have been in a couple bands, one being the Vitriots, who I'm a massive fan of. Um, oh, nice. Way, You're but, the one. No, that is me. <laughs> um, but that's that's obviously finished up. Now, how did you get into music? Um... But just quickly, there's this massive overlap between like indie music in Australia and and AFL fans. And it is so bizarre to me. Like my closest music mates are huge footy nuffies, man. Like they lo- they know more about it than me. And yeah. it's just like, it, it's so eye-opening because I was like, I always thought that musicians were like, nah, sports. Like who cares about sports? But nah, man, they love it. it it's so awesome. But um, do they pretend they don't love it though? I feel like sometimes the really indie ones feel like they're too cool for school and they don't well, want to support. No, like the, my experiences, like the real underground ones, maybe they, they're shameless with it. They like wear the scarves and wear the beanies and they'll like, I'll go to their house and just they'll have the footy on it. And they'll be talking about Port Adelaide's 04 flag or whatever. Like it just <laughs> happens all the time. Um, yeah. So music, um, yeah, I, you know, played guitar, started playing guitar when I was like 10 years old and was just like obsessed with playing guitar because i think it was the first thing that i'd kind of found in my life that felt like mine like there was no pressure on me to do this and i could express myself through it um anyway i always played guitar and and wrote songs not like with the idea of ever being a musician just because i enjoyed doing it and then you know my football career started going south and uh, a few things happened like I, i saw this documentary on kurt cobain like sam naismith and i were living together and he had his laptop and there was like this legally downloaded Kurt Cobain documentary and we watched that and I was like that's the fucking coolest thing ever like I want to do that and that kind of flicked something in me um and then the I I haven't really told the story to many people but this is like the funny people you cross paths with um Dicko Dixon from Australian Idol. Did you yes. watch Idol growing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the British guy. Than, yeah, nothing so did better I, than like, Australian Idol. And I was like eight years old watching Idol, and I was like, Do you know how badly <laughs> I wanted to be Anthony Kalia when he won really? Australian Idol? Yeah, it's a cultural moment. Hey, um, yeah, like uh, somehow I'd been writing these song dem- like recording demos, and somebody forwarded them to Dicko, um, and then he got in contact, and I was like, Oh shit, that's pretty cool. Um, and then for like, this is during my last year at the Swans, he flies down to Sydney and he's like, I want you to make a band, all right? You, you, you make a punk rock band and I'll help you out. I'll connect you with people. I'll be a manager and all this and that. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah. So I'm then calling Dicko like three times a week, sending him demos like every day. Like he's my best mate at this stage. Um, he flies down to Sydney and he's like, we need to get you a rehearsal space. And I was like, oh, great. So we got this underground storage locker in like you know in like a one of those big storage facilities where people just throw their couches or whatever we got one in Artarman and loaded a drum kit up in there uh put a bass rig guitar amp speakers and would like rehearse three times a week and then i'd still have footy training on the next day and stuff so i'd be rehearsing at night having drinks there then going to footy training the next day and like living two lives essentially um just if if anyone starts a you know band and rehearses in a storage locker like use earplugs i didn't use earplugs and it has really messed up my hearing almost um because this is like a tin shed um <laughs> like I, I had no idea what i was doing it was just so fresh and raw um 
anyway, yeah, like my whole last year at, at the Swans was about setting up this band and writing songs. And just after I'd been delisted, um, we recorded our first EP. So Dicko came down, we went to a studio. Uh, the drummer did his parts first. Like he did them in like 20 minutes. He just nailed these takes and then spent the next two days kind of drinking, um, which isn't a smart thing to do. And then, you know, the following night we went to a gig after we'd finished recording, like we hadn't played a live show yet. We hadn't even released music. We didn't even have a name at this point. This is my first fun band I'm in. Um, I get this text from Dicko who's out the back with the with the drummer and he texts me, he's like, I can't work with this dickhead, I'm out. And Dicko stormed out through this pub that we're at and I'm like, what the fuck's going on? The bass player texts me the same thing and was like, I'm out too, I can't deal with this. And I was like, we just recorded an EP, man. Like, we haven't even, <laughs> we just started. Um, anyway, I, I go inside and grab the drummer and take him out the front and ask him what he was doing and he explained it and I didn't like what he was explaining. Next morning, kick the drummer out of the band and it's like, we weren't a band anymore. So that was like my very first band broke up like before we were even a <laughs> band that had played live. With Dicko. With Dicko. Dicko's, <laughs> Dicko's managing this band who hasn't played live. And like, we were not, we were not very good, man. The, the songs were just like my first songs I'd written. Um, even like Dicko set us up with a lawyer to talk contracts and the lawyer costs like 600 bucks an hour or something. We hadn't made any money from the band. I'm like, me and, me and the bass was like, how are we going to pay for this? Um, yeah. And, the, you know, things didn't end up working out with Dicko and, you know, he was really wanting us to, to keep working together, but it didn't um, because I think I was so set on being this like underground punk thing and i didn't want to be associated with anyone who'd made it or who was from like a you know a, a popular tv show um but yeah because he's a punk at heart man he was like a real like red blood punk rocker which is pretty cool um i'm more interested in what this drummer was doing that was so bad oh, that Dicko didn't no, want to hang out with him <laughs> well that's that's, that's funny because like earlier that night we'd been at a gig and the drummer was like tackling me on the dance floor like me and him had played footy together as juniors and he was like tackling me on the dance floor and i was like mate stop like please stop and dicko was like no we love him mate we love his energy he's got great energy you should you should really value that <laughs> and then two hours later he's walking out being like i can't work with this guy um yeah so that was that was the end of the band that kind of like had no name and after that formed the vitriots um but that was my first band, my first love that didn't work out, you know. What's next for you, my friend? You've you've finished up uh, with sport. Um, you've written your first book uh, that's been published, and now uh, back in the music scene. What's what's next for you? What's on the horizon for for Brandon Jack? Yeah, uh, you know, hopefully more writing. Um, hopefully people like the book, and you know, they want me to write more. That'd be great. Um, more music always i i kind of can't stop myself from recording like i'll always make music and and release it you know i people listen to it people don't listen to it i don't care i just i just want to release stuff um books you know i and keeping myself open to other things like i'd love to explore writing for tv or like getting involved in production as well it's there's so many things out there to learn and do um and i'm open to them all i guess how can i ask this and this again this is probably a personal question but how do people like is writing books a career in terms of making money from that? Like, how does that work? Is it just more sales that you have, the more money you get? Like, I, I don't know. I don't think there's many kind of career book writers. Like every book writer would have like a, 
a secondary job as well. Like, well, they'd write essays all the time that they pitch out to publications and you get paid for those. Or they'd be a journalist on the side as well. Mm. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, it's a risk and there's probably not a whole heap of money on it, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, to, to have something out there that you've done and to hold like a book in your hands that you've made, mm. like nothing else is like that. It's like, I knew that the moment I held it in my hands the first time, I'd be like, this is, this is something really cool. Um, you know, I, I do a bunch of other writing jobs on the side as well and, and I'm lucky that they are writing jobs and that I don't have to, you know, work on a construction site or anything uh, because I'd be fucking hopeless at that. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm lucky I can work with words. Mate, it's incredible. You're so right with, with um, someone holding your book. I think, as we alluded to earlier, you can listen to people talk, you can explain something yourself, but something about reading and writing that can't be actually spoken. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's like yeah, people love vinyl records as well. I think we just love having like these these physical possessions almost. It's, it's cool. We have, uh, it's funny you bring that, we have a, a new studio here in, in um, Melbourne and the one thing I've bought is a record player. And nice. I used to rip into people for so long about, <laughs> about vinyl and being like, shut the fuck up. It's exactly the same. It's all and on Spotify I, anyway. Oh, it's all on Spotify. It's all the same shit. But then I actually got my own with a good speaker yeah, it's, system. It's good, and man. it is the most unbelievable thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, it, it kind of classes things up a bit, hey. It's just that little, even just a little pop at the start when you, when you yeah, first yeah, put it Yeah, the vinyl crackle. It's great, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm turning into one of those guys. Um, do you have an <laughs> album for me that I should check out? What's your favourite album of all time oh you're a strokes fan i reckon you're a strokes i fan. love the strokes yeah. yeah okay well i won't give you any strokes then because you know you the first one i've only really heard, heard the first one like from yeah, year yeah, nine yeah. i used to listen to I yeah think. um what am i listening to at the moment i'm, I'm in a big radiohead phase um I, I love you know they're just so left field with all their stuff i think if people are i'll probably have to make a playlist for the book at some point so if you're reading the book and you're looking for something to listen to you know um moon shaped pool by radiohead that album it's very I don't know, like cerebral and there's a lot of strings and orchestration, but, you know, they just can't do wrong, that band. So Moonshaped Pool by Radiohead, I think. I think that's what well, it's called. Okay. Never heard yeah. of that before. I'm going to definitely go into it. Do you know who Radiohead are? I've heard Creep. the song Radiohead. I've heard Creep. the song Radiohead. Creep by Radiohead. You mean, oh, you no, know. I know. I Yeah, definitely knew that. No, for sure. <laughs> um, it's definitely good. Hey, mate, thank you so much for all your time today. It's been absolutely unbelievable. To take us out, and I'm putting you on the spot here. Um, yep. Can you read us one of your favorite excerpts from the book? Have you got any tabs there that you'd be able to open up and give us a, a, a read? Basically, this is a, a small excerpt from the book. This is just a few days before I got delisted. And this is a scene I walked into, into a backyard. And it's, it's funny because it, it's, I'll, I'll read it. Anyway, it goes for like a minute. Um, when I walked into the backyard, I saw one of my teammates holding a glass of red and smoking a cigarette. Lying in the garden behind him was another teammate, shivering, wrapped in a blanket, gripping a bottle of Smirnoff vodka. I sat at the table, opened a carton of Winfield Reds and lit one up, then took a swig of vodka. There were only four of us there for a while until I sent a message to the whole team telling them to come to the backyard we were in. I said they should only come if they each bought a slab of cruisers. I don't know why I said cruisers, but by midday, there were 40-odd slabs of cruisers on the table in the backyard. The next morning, I saw my exit meeting was scheduled for 12.20 on Wednesday. Beneath it, there was a team meeting at 1 p.m., they always filled the hour before that final review with players heading towards a certain fate. Oh my God, that's incredible. That is so true. The the vodka cruiser memorial service that day was. And it was, <laughs> yeah. In one of the guys' backyards, there was 40 slabs of cruisers. And I, I still don't know why I suggested that, but I always took the players 
doing that as a, as a sign of subtle respect for me <laughs> that, they, that they'd go to those lengths. You definitely yeah. have the respect, but you're right in terms of every single player. I think they're trying to be innocuous and don't think that players oh, understand yeah. with the schedule, but when they put the schedule up and there's four rookies there that are out of contract and they're the last yeah. meetings of the day, you definitely know what's coming. Brandon, yeah, exactly. it's been unbelievable, mate. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, congratulations on your book. We're going to have all the, the links to the show notes, so please um, jump out and grab one. What's the best place to order from, mate? If your local bookstore does do click and collect, um, you know, because things aren't open in a lot of places, just just call them up and ask. Booktopia has a few signed copies on it as well. So that's probably the best place online to go to. Um, but yeah, support your local bookstore if you can. Awesome, mate. Thank you so much for your chats. Thank you so much for your time. Can't wait to catch up soon when, when the border's opened and um, have a couple of cruises, mate. Thanks, Dale. I'll see you at the Unicorn if it's still open, hopefully. If that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. An exclusive loyalty subscription featuring the debrief podcast of each episode and bonus Q&As from Patreon members. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you liked the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review, or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.